We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to History 102, where YouTube creator What If Alt Hists, Rudyard Lynch, and I dive into critical moments in history and tease out patterns to help us predict the future. Let's jump right in. Rudyard, I'm stoked to be doing History 102 with you. We've uh, struck up a bit of a friendship over the last few years, and yeah. uh, it's it's going to be great to to do this. What what, uh, what inspired you to to say yes? What, what are you hoping to uh, that we achieve with this podcast? To be honest, I don't actually talk about history that much, which is crazy because you think, Rudyard, you run a history channel, but I'm talking <laughs> a lot about the themes in history, like why did blank happen? And I very rarely actually get to talk about World War One or the Vikings or what actually happened in history. And um, this also gives me a lot of variety. So like, it challenges me so I can jump between a bunch of different topics. Let's briefly introduce ourselves because there are going to be people coming from me who don't know who yeah. you are, and there are people who coming from you who don't know who I am. So, Rudyard, for people who aren't familiar with with what if all this, why don't you briefly uh, introduce yourself and and the channel? Hi, I'm Rudyard Lynch. I'm originally from an hour outside Philadelphia. I live in Texas right now, and I run the YouTube channel What If All Test, which is looking at the patterns of history to explain the future. So it started out with the sort of thing like, what if the Nazis won the Civil War? What if the South won World War II? And from that, I shifted over to geopolitics, anthropology, history, philosophy. So I try to figure out what are the strengths and weaknesses of different world civilizations? And so I talk about all these things relating to history. And I do that as a full-time job. Uh, We have half a million subscribers right now. And I, I'm grateful this worked out. This wasn't a job like five years ago. What about you, Eric? What's your story? So I'm a entrepreneur and an investor. I uh, I helped start companies like Product Hunt and OnDeck and Village Global, which is an early stage venture firm. And most recently, I started Turpentine, which is a tech media company starting as a podcast network. And we also have shows like Econ 102 with with Noah Smith. And I want to have more liberal arts shows as well. And I've always had an interest in history, but I don't have a, a deep background in it. I've been a longtime fan of, of your show. So that, that's what got me excited about it. You good if we get started? Yes. Why is World War I the, the place that, that gets you the most excited or, or why you want to start here out of all the topics? Two different reasons. The first is I've been doing history YouTube for a very long time. And this is just a crowd favorite where people love World War I and the second reason, it's an incredibly dramatic conflict, and we're going to get into the details here about this, but you have these thousand-year-old countries fighting in these trenches that are reminiscent of hell. It's these very complicated alliances. It's like something you'd see in a, a fantasy novel, and I actually think World War I is one of the most important wars in history. I think it's actually more important than World War II, and we'll get through that through this, this podcast. Yeah, S- set the scene for us. World War I is a war that I think a lot of people in America find intimidating. And the example people hear about is the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is shot in Bosnia. And a lot of Americans think, what does that mean? You have all these countries that people in America don't think about or don't care about with like, what's an Archduke? And World War I is also complicated and intimidating due to just the the network of alliances people will hear about oh austro-hungary declared war on serbia russia declared war on austro-hungary germany gets involved and whenever you have a complicated period in history with all a lot of different causal stuff it's hard to keep track of it's more useful to figure out why that's happening rather than the actual chain of events and the thing that caused world war one is fundamentally one factor and that is the industrial revolution and you've got two kinds of wars over history you have wars of prosperity and wars of desperation a war of desperation is like the 30 years war or the 100 years war where countries start this war because they're falling apart as societies and they need to have a war to unify their populations wars of prosperity are wars that are fought because the society is very wealthy it's very um 
has a lot of young people, and it just wants to expand. And World War I was a war of prosperity where every country in Europe was incredibly young, where like their average age was, it was lots of people in their early 20s. And societies, lots of young men caused lots of violence. It's a generally a great predictor for war. And what happened was you had all of these European countries that were just, they wanted to expand. And so they started having all these imperialistic goals. And World War I started right after the Europeans colonized the rest of the world. The Europeans colonized everyone with industry and young men. And they thought, we have nothing else to do. We have to turn on each other. And the fundamental best way I have to explain how it started is that Britain and France were the great powers of the 19th century era. And then Germany had unified because it was a, a bunch of independent states for 800, 600 years beforehand. And Germany, as it industrialized, it had more industry, more power, more people than Britain and France combined. And so the Germans thought, we have all this power, but we don't really have a colonial empire. This isn't fair. We need to fight these people to rise to power. And then Britain and France were scared of Germany. And so they allied with Russia. And Russia was also industrializing. And we forget this today, but Russia at that time period, it was experiencing rapid population growth, rapid industrial growth. It was a cultural powerhouse. It was a military powerhouse. But Russia was not a modernized society. And so the Germans made a calculation that 1916 was the last year they could beat Russia in a war. And a big reason the war started was the Germans thought in 1914, if we don't crush Russia now, we will not survive as a country. And the reason World War I started when it did was all these powers in Europe made the calculation that this was the last time that they could survive. The French and the British realized if we don't fight this war now, the Germans will outcompete us. The Germans made the calculation if we don't start this war now, the Russians will crush us. And so and, this, and why did they think that? Why did they think that? Because the Industrial Revolution and population growth meant that Germany and Russia were expanding faster than Britain and France. And um, both of those countries had massive population booms and they were growing faster. And so they basically thought if we wait another five years, the British, the French were worried the Germans would crush them. The Germans were worried the Russians would crush them. And so that's how you get this convoluted web of alliances because everyone was terrified that this was the last time that they could survive as a country. Before getting into the, the logic here, like, why don't you give more background? Okay, so that's, that's why it started. And then what happened? One of the most important details for World War I is that our, it's, you have to look at the society that started it because their society was in many ways the exact opposite of ours because our era is a direct rejection of what happened in World War I. And the reason I said World War I is one of the most important wars in history, more so than even World War II, because the cultural shifts attached to World War I were massive. Where the societies that went into World War I, they were very nationalistic. There were these giant colonial empires. They were obsessed with honor and politeness and titles. And it's the opposite of our society, which is very nihilistic, very relativist, very anti-nationalist, very feminine. Well, that era was hyper-masculine. And so you had these societies of people that were very aggressive, very honor-driven. And our society has done a good job of pointing out the flaws of that previous social system. And there are many, including racism. It's, they were incredibly puritanical and prude. But there's a lot to admire about that society. The elites genuinely cared about the people. It was a very brave society. If you see the, the courage with the soldiers fought in World War I, it's unbelievable. And these are people who are, this is 100 years ago. Like, my father knew people who fought in World War I growing up. And this was a society that had the most rapid technological and economic progress ever. And one of the things I like to say is everyone is a good guy in World War I and everyone is a bad guy in World War II. The worst faction in World War I were the Tsar, and the best faction in World War II were the Americans. The Tsars didn't genocide anyone. They tried to maintain human rights, and the best guys in World War II, the Americans, we firebombed a bunch of places. We dropped two nuclear bombs, and what happened was that you had this very um, strong culture that had built up for a thousand years up to World War One, and it was a very earnest culture where when war, war started, 
young people were happy. It was a month of partying as the war started because these were young men who grew up with the idea of war is a, like war is glorious adventure and we're going to have fun. We'll be like knights charging. And then that, and then World War I was so horrible that destroyed that idea. And you can view the entirety of the last century as a rejection of the social order that came before World War I because World War I was so traumatic. Yeah. And, and so, and let's get to the specifics of the, the conflict itself of, was it ever a question of who was going to win? Was it close at some point or what, when you talk about how, uh, how, how the winners emerged? World War I is one of the closest wars in history, in my opinion. And there are two points where the Germans nearly won, where World War I is basically Germany against the world. On one side were the Russians, the French, and the British. And on the other side were the Germans, the Austrians, and the Turks. The thing is, Austro-Hungary and Turkey were both barely industrialized countries. And World War I was a conflict of output, where the war descended into who could kill, who, who could make the most uh, guns, who could make the most weapons. And that was something that people didn't like at the time because it, they grew up in this very like heroic war is about manliness and valor and that stuff. But it turned into the slog. And it's really remarkable that the Germans nearly won the war because they're surrounded on all sides where the Germans said during the war, fighting with Austria is fighting next to a corpse. They literally called the Austrian Empire a corpse. Um, and Turkey was a Turkey was part medieval. They had only barely started to industrialize five years beforehand. So it was the Germans against the world. And the Germans nearly won. And it's a the Germans um had one of the best militaries ever going into this war. The German military, they they did all of these brilliant tactics, and they they had a class of men whose entire life was built up training for war. And the the German strategy was to knock out France. So you have two, Germany's in the middle of the map. You have France and you have Russia. The distance from the German border to Paris is t- only half the distance from the German border to the Russian capital of Leningrad. Or sorry, St. Petersburg at the time. And so the Germans had this thing called the Schlieffen Plan, which was to send a giant amount of men, knock out France in about a week, and then turn on Russia. The really sad thing about World War I is that World War I happened at the exact wrong time, where if the war had happened 10 years earlier or 10 years later, it would look incredibly different, where World War I happened at exactly the time when the defense had the greatest advantage. Machine guns had been invented, and you had, you had other technological innovations like the railroad that made defending very easy, but then... Five years beforehand, you wouldn't have had those. And then five years afterwards, you would have had the tank. And what the tank did was make it so that the offense was easy. And so the thing that made World War I such a horrifying war was that the defense had such a profound advantage that people would send armies of a million men against their enemy, and they they wouldn't move the front a mile. You could send a million men at the enemy. They would just mow them all down with machine guns. And so World War I turned into this war of these two armies staring at each other. They couldn't move the front line. And the German Schlieffen plan would have worked five years earlier. It would have worked five years later. But it happened at exactly the wrong time. And um, the Germans invaded. They invaded France. They invaded Belgium, too, which is an important detail because... The British didn't want to fight the Germans. Britain was very was isolationist as a country in Europe. But then the British sided with the French because the Germans invaded Belgium, and Belgium has loads of ports you can use to attack England. So the English had their hands moved. And the German commander Kaiser Wilhelm, he is one of he's a horrible leader. Like there's an apocryphal story that someone sent a note of someone wrote up an assessment of kaiser wilhelm wrote it anonymously to a doctor and the doctor said yeah this guy's clinically retarded um and (laughs) no like i don't it's one of those things where it could be true it could be apocryphal but it's kind of indicative um of how germany was managed and so he pissed off britain britain got involved in the war and what happened in the schlieffen plan was the germans were stopped within five miles of paris not five sorry 25 miles of paris And what happened was the French army 
the French army was really took a, a beating. Um, and there was an Algerian regiment in France, in Paris, and the mayor of Paris got all these taxi cab drivers to move this Algerian regiment up to the front line through using taxi cabs. And then they were just able to stop the Germans before they seized Paris. And so over the first three months of the war, the Germans got very close to knocking out France. And in my opinion, they would have won the war after that. Um, the second thing that happened in 1914 is the Germans attacked France, thinking the Russians, because Russia was a pretty primitive, deindustrialized society. They thought that the Russians couldn't mobilize. But Russia went against their expectations, and the Russians mobilized much faster than what they expected, where the Russians sent this giant army into the Germany. And then at the Battle of Tannenberg, the um, the Germans found the Russian battle plan. And I've read horror stories of the Russian army. They had no merit. They were completely inefficient. They... Um, wow. They often didn't give their men guns or shoes, and they just told them to start charge with sticks. So the Germans found a battle plan for the Russians, and then they slaughtered a Russian army three times their size. And so when Hitler kept on, in World War II, kept on thinking of the racial superiority of the Germans, it was because they were able to consistently do things like kill Russian armies two or three times their size. And in reality, the Germans and the Russians are very genetically close. It's just Russia's social structure messed them up. And the Germans were able to consistently, and this will be a theme across this podcast, the Germans were able to consistently beat armies significantly larger than their size in the East, but in the West, they were stuck in gridlock. Yeah. That's, um, and, and say more, what, what, why will that be a theme? Um, because the Germans win the war in the East and they lose it in the West. And that same thing happens in other wars as well? I mean, kind of. In World War II, the Germans were able, at the start of the Eastern Front in World War II, the Germans were able to t- kill three Russians for every German they lost. The problem, though, is that in the 20 years between World War I and World War II, uh, Russia industrialized. And so that was a big miscalculation Hitler made, which is what we'll need to talk about in our World War II episode. But right. the big theme with World War I is that no one could break through the trenches in the Western Front. And if you guys want to know the specific battles, I definitely recommend listening to Dan Carlin's 24-hour podcast on World War One. He goes through each individual battle. I listen to it on the Appalachian Trail. And so what, but World War One and the Appalachian Trail are always glued together in my mind. And as I was struggling with the bugs and my back breaking from the pack and clawing my toenail off, I thought about, at least I'm not at the Somme. And... <laughs> And so with World War One, you had these front lines where these these were it's remarkable to see World War One because it's all of these intensely proud countries that yeah. had to basically smash up against each other. And it's crazy to see over the course of four years, the psychology of Europe completely changed because the war was just so horrifying. And hmm. on the Western Front, because it didn't move and it was just. From the North Sea to the Alps, or I think think it's like 300 miles, it was just infinite front lines. You could not pass through. And they'd have three or four layers of trenches on each side. And so what happened was that these countries kept on trying to invent new methods to break through the front line. And they tried a bunch of stuff, and it wasn't clear what would finally work. Poison gas was invented because of this. Um, A lot of airplane warfare was invented to bomb the enemies. Um, The Germans invented something called shock troops, where they would specifically designed strategies of highly training small groups of soldiers to just punch through an enemy line. And there was, there was a bunch of the other innovations. And the problem was that until the end of the war, nothing worked and millions upon millions of young men died in the Western front. And the reason that it traumatized Europe so much and world war one resulted in so many social changes was that the deaths in the war were predominantly of the ruling class. And this is something I admire about their society, was that this the, the sons of royalty, the sons of the nobility of the wealthy, they were fighting on the front lines. If you look at the attrition rate for the sons of prime ministers, most prime ministers in Europe are a very significant amount saw their sons die. And what happened with World War I was that the most educated class just died out. And 
not all wars are equally horrifying. Where World War I only killed at a quarter as many people as World War II, but the way the war fought changed things. Because in World War II, in the Eastern Front's different. That's just complete horror. In the Western Front, there's the sense of accomplishment. Armies are constantly moving around. There's the sense of heroically fighting the Nazis. World War I, there's none of that. It's just... England versus France versus Germany versus Russia, it's its national conflicts. There's no heroic sense to it. And people are stuck in these trenches where you can get shot at any time. There's artillery firing all the time. There's no escape. You're stuck in this trench for months on end with mud up to your legs, with rats everywhere, people dying of disease. And it's just the individual fight in World War I was so horrifying. It, it's hell. You, 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 the, the front turned and it looked like the moon where you just had, there was no life, everything was destroyed. And trauma is most triggered by a sense of helplessness. And what happened was you took an entire generation of young men, made them feel completely helpless, where a million of you will die to charge an enemy line, when you're not going to move it. You're just going to die. And so you took this society beforehand, which was very proud, very earnest, very honorable, very optimistic. People before World War I thought that the future would be an amazing place and we just have more technology and that stuff. And then what happened after it is you saw the, the origin of nihilistic art. You saw post you saw the origins of postmodernism because the war was just so horrifying that no one knew how to deal with it, that we just didn't have the cultural forms to understand what was happening. And every country that lost World War I became a dictatorship. It happened to Germany with the Nazis. It happened to Russia with Stalin. And the countries that won the war were consumed by nihilism and depression. And you have these giant battles like Verdun, the Somme, um, etc., Ypres. And what happened was they just send a million men to punch through the border. It wouldn't work. They'd try a new method like poison gas. That wouldn't work. And, and, and so... You you just saw mass death and yeah, yeah it's it's just remarkable to see in retrospect. Um, and so the Western Front was stagnant for the four years between 1914 and 1918. Circling back up for a second, did this war have to happen? You you you, you mentioned your journey so. thought that. So let's unpack again why. So Germany initi- had to initiate it because they were scared that they were going to get outproduced. Like there was no way to avoid it or say more. There were about 10 places where World War One nearly happened. And Bismarck, the guy who ran Germany, was a strategic genius. And he had actively delayed war. And so a war nearly started out between Morocco, um, in the Congo, off the coast of Germany, in the Balkan War, and so there were about 10 different places where World War I nearly happened, and it didn't. And what that signifies is that there's this underlying settlement which had to resolve, and World War I would have started somewhere. And the reason for that is there was just so much tension in Europe at the time, and in periods of rapid change, you have you needed to have a war to change things. And you had all these antiquated countries like Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Europe was run by kings. It was run by nobility. And that didn't work anymore once you had a society with radio or industrialization or cities. And so you had all this tension building up under the surface that had to be released. And you needed to have a war because the war was this release of all of this underlying tension inside of the European order. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And so the we'll, we'll do a separate episode on World War II, but did you, did you feel that World War II was more, more avoidable? or it's, I mean, two world wars within 20 years, it's a lot. I think World War II is more avoidable than World War I. Uh, world War I, you kind of see as this predictable disaster. And it was predictable, it was predictable in retrospect. People at the time thought there would never be a major war. Which is something, whenever we, whenever there's a world war, people don't believe it until it happens. That happened for World War II, too. Happened for the American Civil War. And the thing with re- World War I in retrospect is, I heard a great historian describe this as, it's a series of small, rational decisions that added up to madness. And you can see that where, for example, Russia declared war on Austria because Serbia was Russia's ally, and so 
Austria declared war on Serbia, so Russia thought, I have to protect Serbia to keep my ally in the Balkans. The Germans thought, we need to protect Austria, because without us, Russia's Austria is going to lose. And so it was all of these tiny decisions that added up to the death of the European social order. And, and so you can, there's a real humanity to World War I. And I've read a lot of the, the, the journals of the state officials who were starting the war. They were generally humane people. You could hear them writing, this is going to be horrifying. I can't believe this is happening. The British minister said, I see the lights going out across Europe. I don't think they'll be back on for my entire life. And World War II, it was mostly just Hitler, where Germany felt revenge at having World War I, and they wanted to let out the tension and get back a second round. The British and the French really didn't want a war. Russia, they didn't really want one either. And the way you could explain both world wars was that Europe had all this built-up tension and with the advancements in technology, it didn't make sense to have all of these. Um, France is the size of Texas. Britain is the size of Michigan. With an advanced society with railroads and planes and stuff, the warring states period in Europe, it had to end. And every major civilization has a warring states period in which one of the warring states wins. And that was a process that was going through in the Western world. But the winner of our warring states is America. So people were killing each other until one power would rise to the top. And so one thing you said earlier I want to just flesh out is you said if Germany had defeated France, maybe they could have won the war. There were, there were two points where Germany nearly won the war. And I'm not finished describing the war. We've got some more fronts. It's not just the Western Front. Um, Germany yes. nearly won the war in 1914, and they nearly won it in 1918 in um because the, the the Western Front was most permeable at the beginning and the end of the war. For the four years in between, you couldn't cross it. And so the Germans nearly won in both cases. And the war was mainly, again, it's a war of who could outcompete who else. And the point where the Allies were definitely going to win, because they were very neck to neck, the Germans and the British and the French, they were all pretty close. And when Germany conquered Russia, which we'll talk about later— it was very close. And so what was happening was both sides were mutinying because they had no spirit and they just couldn't handle how horrifying the trenches were. So the French army mutinied. America joined the war. That gave the French the morale to keep fighting. Um, but the German army mutinied in the war. But in 1918, after winning against Russia, the Germans launched another attack called the Kaiserschlacht, which is one of the coolest words I've heard in history. And that was during 1918 offensive where um, the Germans also got very close to Paris. But again, this is a controversial thing where different nationalities believe different things. The Americans tend to believe that we won, we, we won that war. The British and the French don't like it when we say that. But I do think America won the war because right in the second time the Germans nearly took Paris, it was the Americans that blocked up the, the German and the French armies. And by the end of the war, the British and the French didn't have any men to keep fighting. It was the Americans who gave the push to finally beat the Germans. And what also, it was this sliding scale between can Germany win the war before the Germans starve? Because the Germans were fighting the British Empire, which was the great naval power of that era. So the British blockaded Germany. And at this point, Europe couldn't feed itself. So the Germans were experiencing mass famine, and they were in deep starvation where they would they made turnip hamburgers where or they they do all these shortcuts they, they it ersatz is a german word for fake and so they had all these like fake recipes to make up for the entire german population ate no protein for the spring of night the winter of 1916 like we have statistical records they ate basically no protein um and so the germans were wearing out over the war all the british were blockading them and the great advantage the Allies had was the giant empires. Keep in mind, in that era, Britain was the largest country in the world. They controlled Canada. They controlled a lot of Africa. They controlled India, Australia. The French had most of West Africa and Vietnam. Um, and so the Allies could pull on their giant empires while the Germans were stuck inside Europe. And the Germans got America to be in the war through having stunningly bad PR, because once America entered the war, Germany can't win. It, they could have knocked 
France out briefly in the Kaiserschlacht, but then after that, it was just done because America had by far the largest industrial output of any country in the world, and it had the largest population of any country still in the war. And and the Germans didn't have a concept of public relations. Public relations was actually invented for World War One. The guys who developed the advertising industry were all people who were propagandists for World War One, and. Um, the British and the Americans had public relations, so they were constantly scheming and making propaganda to make the Germans look bad. And I generally don't think the Germans were markedly worse people than the British and the French. The British made it look like that, though. And the Germans made all of these really nasty public relations errors because their society was run by all these warrior nobles. It wasn't run by people who thought about advertising. And, for example, they... um they set a proclamation to Mexico saying, hey, Mexico, if you attack America, you can get the Southwest back. Mexico was in a civil war. There wasn't a Mexican government. And that made the Americans think that the Germans hate us. And keep in mind, there were millions of German Americans and America was an isolationist country. The average American really did not want to get into war. And then um, the Germans killed an American ship. And that was a big propaganda move that the Western um, public relations really galvanized America to join the war. And I have an ancestor who, who fought in World War I, where America didn't do that much fighting, but it came in at exactly the right time when everyone was exhausted. And so they could tip the balance against Germany. And the thing is, Germany controlled all of Eastern Europe by that point. The Germans were able to knock out the Russians, which is a really impressive achievement i mean russian empire was huge and um but they were able to have a couple of battles like we talked about tannenberg before gorlis tarnow um which was a a battle in the carpathians uh in modern romania and though russia just fell apart as a country the russians lost so many men and russia was not an industrialized country it just didn't have the capability for that and they stopped being able to feed their own people and then the Germans dropped Vladimir Lenin in Russia. And that's a future Russian Civil War video. But Lenin started the... Comp there was a previous revolution that was like democratic monarchist. Because Russia was one of the most absolutist societies in the world. It, um, yeah, it had no... It, it was one of the least democratic places. And there was all this pent-up tension. And... Vladimir Lenin started a revolution that got all of central Russia. So Russia spiraled off into its own civil war. And once there was a civil war, the uh, they could no longer fight the Germans. And so the Germans took all of Eastern Europe. And so by the point the Germans were fighting the Americans, they had all of Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltic states. The Germans had built this expansive colonial empire, which they were... Um, which they were actively trying to colonize. Even at the end of the war, the Germans were moving settlers and people into Eastern Europe, and they were taking food from it. And this is the origin of Hitler's fantasies about colonizing Eastern Europe. And so history really hung on a dime, where you had this giant German empire that was only defeated because Germany just ran out of men or industry or willpower. Yeah, F fascinating. So zooming out uh, a, 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 a little bit let's make sure we flushed out the, the 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 war entirely why don't you we've been going on some very interesting tangents but why don't you briefly summarize some of the main inflection points of the of the war so we have a bit of a chronological timeline of uh of, of, of okay. what exactly happened so first step uh the schlieffen plan germans attack france they're stopped outside paris um then the war bogs down in the east the Germans gradually beat the Russians, um, and that takes a couple of years. Russia falls apart by 1916. The first year of the war is 1914. The Germans consolidate their empire in the east, and then there's a lot of fighting on the Western Front. The Germans attack the Western Front again. They lose, and then Germany gives up. And um, Germany had to give up then? They just didn't have any men anymore. Where yeah. the German military mutinied, they said, we're not going to fight this anymore. And it's crazy to see these societies, because I said before, these were very earnest, like warlike societies. And after four years, the Germans just gave up. Right. And um, 
and America, say more about America's role or impact in, uh, in determining this? America was run by Woodrow Wilson, who was a progressive president, um, but the progressives were different from what they mean today. And he really wanted to get America involved in the war for the whole time. But um, he wasn't able to because the Democrats were the uh, – these parties meant completely different things. The Democrats were the expansionist party and the Republicans were the isolationist party. And so he couldn't get the Republican Congress to approve the war until he got um, – until he got them involved, until the 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 Germans did a couple really bad PR moves, which could get the population outraged, and America actually didn't do that much fighting. They fought at the end in that final point to keep the Germans from seizing Paris the second time. But the big thing America did is it just trained the Americans. Sent I think 150 hundreds of thousands of people to Europe when everyone involved was completely tired. And so it was this very tight equilibrium that the Americans balanced against the Germans. Yeah. Qu- quick side note, tangent question. Why do the Democrats and Republicans switch every 50 or so years? I'm not sure what it was the right time frame, but w- what's the right mental model for thinking about how the parties evolve? What? One becomes working class, then the elites. Yeah. I'm going to use my family as an example. At the time of World War I, my mom's side lived in Nebraska. They were Republicans. My dad's side were Irish Catholics. They were based out of New Jersey. It flipped. My dad's side moved from – they were Democrats because beforehand, the uh, Democrats were the party of Southerners and Catholics. And the Republicans were the party of Northern Protestants. And so the biggest Republican states were Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nebraska – the biggest Democrat states were Texas, Tennessee, and then like part, and then New York sometimes, Rhode Island sometimes. And so they flopped when the biggest division in America wasn't North-South. After civil rights stopped being an issue, the South stopped being a block against the North, and then it differed again. It differed from interior to coastline. And so is the right way of thinking about the parties is less of like a consistent set of beliefs and more of like a tribe of people that yeah. uh, that changes as, as they have kids and their kids move and, you know. The parties reflect what American society is. And so as of that era, it was the division between the North and the South. And um, as that as the North-South division eased, as Southerner, as the South assimilated the rest of the country more, it became coast versus interior because the rise of um, the globalist, the globalized economy and agnosticism created a cultural difference in the coasts and interiors that didn't exist before. And so as America changes, the parties change. And this brings up an interesting point where one of the biggest effects for World War I was it was the rise of socialism, where before World War I, there was no – the government was very hands-off. The government was seen as we will wage war and we will have no taxes. Across the Western world, the idea of the government meddling in the economy was seen as just disgusting. It was a violation of private property. But then World War I was so big, it forced everyone's governments to get involved. And so every major country in the war became something much closer to socialism by the end. And for Germany, Germany was a monarchy at the beginning, and it was still technically a monarchy at the end, but it was really a military dictatorship run as a socialist society. The Germans and the Russians basically gave up on capitalism, where it was just them ordering their men around. And for America and Russia and Britain, or America, Russia, France, the government also rose to power, where socialist parties won the first election. and. World War One has an incredibly profound shift because it totally changed the role of government in society. Yeah. Did it, did it lead to just more centralization across the board? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, where, for example, almost none of those countries had income taxes before World War One, and you didn't have government meddling in the economy. You didn't have government meddling in society. The idea in World War before World War One, for example, was that if Let's say a man insulted your daughter. It was your duty as a man to get a sword or a gun and challenge him. Taking it through the police was dishonorable. Or the idea of the government giving a charity, that didn't exist before World War I. That was seen as the church. And so the church's responsibility to have charity. And so with World War I, you saw this profound shift from 
This profound shift from a small government in a very strong culture to a large government in a weak culture, where things like religion, like the family, um, regional identities, town town identities, that weakened in exchange for the central government becoming the main identity. Yeah, fascinating. Let's talk more about how World War I changed the world. You mentioned the psychology early on in terms of yeah. it made us uh, less violent or, or more scared of uh, more nihilistic, more postmodern. You also just mentioned how it introduced uh, or popularized kind of big government, you know, uh, government sort of organized uh, economy and society. How, how else did it did it change the world? Maybe the geopolitics of of the yeah. you know the relative power of certain players, or let's talk about some of the biggest impacts of World War. So, one of them is feminism, where women gained the vote across the Western world due to World War One, because World War One's not like most other wars. World War One is one of the most intense wars in history for the societies involved. Most wars in history. They kind of just happen in the background. For a lot of wars in the 1700s, you could literally go to vacation or trade with the country that you were at war with when you were at war with them. Because it wasn't about war between country, it was war between the monarchs. But that's not World War I. And so all the men had to fight, and the women worked in factories. But when the women worked in factories, they had they they were they said, We helped the nation, give us the vote. And so in England, in America, in France, in Germany, women got the vote in the year after World War I ended. And World War I ended the European world, where for the 500 years before that, Europe had giant colonial empires that dominated everything. And what that resulted in so, I mean, you had Europe, almost everywhere in the world was a European colony, and almost everything that wasn't a European colony was. The Europeans had so much influence in it, it might as well be. So China or Turkey or that sort of thing. We need to talk about the Middle East, but that oh, let's bring that up later. Uh, because there was some fighting going on there. But um, what World War I did was kill Europe. None of the European countries had willpower, and the Europeans totally trashed their economy in World War II. Or, sorry, World War I. Before the war, Europe was one of the very most wealthy places in the world. And then every country in Europe saw a massive decrease in its quality of life due to World War I because they got in this horrible debt they couldn't pay back. And the one really big winner of World War I was America. America got into the end of the war. And an interesting thing is the financial hub of the world moved from London to New York because the English, beforehand, Europeans invested in America. And because America was a developing country, so they wanted to build factories in Illinois or railroads in Arizona. And what happened afterwards was America gave money to the Europeans and weapons to the Europeans to fight the war. So the Europeans became indebted to the Americans, um, and America became the complete economic dominator of the world. And it turned America went into Europe at the end of the war, and the Americans wrote the treaty where they developed the terms of what the world in Europe looked like. And so World War One is the start of America's world dominance. Although after the end of the war, the Americans went back to we we gave up and we were isolationist, which then resulted in the rise of Hitler. Um but it's it, it's it's the end World War One, the one of the most important things is that it set up a period of decline, which ultimately led into the collapse of the European colonial empires after World War II. Say, say more about that. So World War I, the world's dynamic completely changed, where before World War I, the Europeans were rapidly sending settlers out. Um, there were projections that South Africa would become a majority white country. There were projections that Algeria would become a majority white country because you had all of these Europeans, young guys who had to do stuff. World War I just killed all of them. And so <laughs> we saw this giant selection pressure against young, aggressive European men. And the Europeans stopped. They lost any sense of hope or future or courage due to World War I. Or the British and the French did, where pacifist parties rose to power, and those pacifist parties then set up Hitler to rise to power. And mm. the Europeans then, to keep their colonial empires, they had to get debt from the Americans. The Americans didn't like that the Europeans had colonial empires. And so after the next World's War, the Americans said, 
we're not going to give you money for your empires. So the Europeans had to give up their empires. So it switched this dynamic from the Europeans being this irrepressible just force to the Europeans being so mired in their own internal issues that they were incapable of of being that force acting upon the rest of the world. So Europe used to run the world, and then post-World War One, they lost a lot of power, and thereby elevating America or uh, yeah. to uh, to running the world. And so let, let's talk about the rest of the world. You mentioned, let, let's talk about the Middle East. What, what was going on there? So there are two fronts. The, the world War I is mostly a European war, where uh, I think like probably 90% of deaths in the war occurred in Europe. And so it's often not really fair to call it World War I. World War II is much more of a global war. And there were a couple different fronts where there was a handful of fighting in the South Pacific and China with the Germans had colonies. But there was also some fighting in Africa where the British took over some German colonies. And the Germans maintained this really aggressive, they had some just Chadley commander in Tanzania where he just rallied and built an army of Africans himself and then just fought the British. And so this one German army in Tanzania that had almost no German guys, but was just this one really incredible commander, he kept the war going until the end. He was actually even invading neighboring countries around Tanzania. But the Turkish Empire were allied with the Germans because the Germans had a goal of of industrializing the Turkish Empire, or at least building a lot of trains and factories there. And the British tried to so Russia was dying, and the British wanted to get more resources to Russia because Russia doesn't really have a good uh, water border. So their goal was to fight through Turkey and then use that to get to Russia. And this was a plan invented by Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill also invented – the thing that finally broke the Western Front was the invention of the tank. Because the tank could just smash over – it could smash over trenches, and that's what broke the defensive campaign. So Churchill was – Churchill was a smart guy, and he was constantly developing these. He was the the Lord of the Admiral. He was the Lord of the the Navy in Britain, the Sea Lord, which is a great name. Um, and he tried to attack Turkey, and then the commander where the British landed in Gallipoli, that commander was Ataturk. He just happened to be there. Ataturk is considered one of the greatest com- leaders ever in Turkish history. He is considered one of the greatest leaders in the entire 20th century. It's imagine America attacks in part of the Chinese coastline and Chinese George Washington just happens to be the guy there. And the Turks were able to defeat the British, which surprised everyone because Turkey was a pre-industrial country and the Turks fought incredibly well. And everyone expected Turkey to die because Turkey's nickname was the sick man of Europe. But the Turks beat the British in Gallipoli and then the British attacked up through Syria and uh, Iraq, because Kuwait and Egypt are British colonies, while um, Iraq, Syria, Israel were Turkish colonies, because the Turks ran most of the Middle East. And after a couple years, the British were able to defeat the Turks. But a really incredible story, which you deserve, I can't do it justice here, but you can look it up independently, is a British man named T.E. Lawrence he was an anthro- he did some anthropology stuff. He was based out of Egypt. He went into Arabia, and Saudi Arabia was run by independent tribes who weren't part of the Saudi Arabia was so poor the Turks had no reason to colonize it. And so T. E. Lawrence showed up. He told all these tribes, if you fight for me, I will give the entire Middle East to the Arabs. And so he was able to organize this this. Arab army, and they knocked the Turks out of a lot of the Middle East. So it's again, this one guy shows up, raises an army, and then the British lied to the Turk. The British lied to the Arabs and then made those areas British colonies rather than giving them to the Arabs. But it it did create this uh, second front against the Ottomans. Fascinating. Um, Going going back to America for a second, uh, say more about... um, post-World War I, at what, at what point does America really become a, a global superpower? Or like, talk about that sort of progression, post-World War I in, in America. This relates to an interesting point where the, the Great Depression is caused by World War I. And what happened there is the Americans 
completely dominated the world's economy after World War I. America was the only wealthy society in the world. And so when people talk about the Roaring Twenties, which was a period of intense partying and degeneracy, that was just in America. In Europe, the Roaring Twenties were just PTSD shock and poverty. And so the American economy basically became the world economy. But the problem is the American economy couldn't sustain all this money they got from Europe, which created the bubble of 1929, thus causing the Great Depression. And so the Great Depression was a side effect of the world economy after World War One. Before World War One, the world's economy was intensely interconnected. And there was actually an author named Angel who made a very popular argument saying, it's physically impossible to have a war because there's too much trade interconnection. And that's an idea I hear today all the time. But that wasn't true. But after World War One, all of these um, trade reps were broken down and everything was destroyed. And so America became the economic titan after World War One. America didn't want to have the war because Woodrow Wilson, the guy who Woodrow Wilson was a very idealistic man. He want he built the he built pr- the proto UN or the League of Nations, and his big thing was national self determination, and that means every ethnicity should be independent rather than having the giant Austrian or British empires. Let the Slovaks be independent. He didn't apply this principle to white people, but later generations did. Uh, let the Poles be independent. And America didn't really like that, where the reason Woodrow Wilson won, and for the 60 years after the U.S. Civil War, the Republicans won every single election except one, because the Democrats were seen as the party of slavery in the Civil War. And the big demographic that the Republicans pulled from, being Northern Protestants, that was such a big part of the country that the Republicans could run America like a one-party state for 60 years straight. What happened is that there was a fight inside the Republican Party between Teddy Roosevelt and Taft. And what that resulted in was splitting the Republicans. So Woodrow Wilson, as the Democrat, was able to win a race in which the Democrats would not win otherwise. And then so what happened after the war was the isolationist Republicans seized power and then basically said, America's not going to be in the world. So America had all this economic importance, but they didn't actually use any political power. And this created a a vacuum between a power vacuum where that started World War II because World War II had all of these unanswered questions from World War I. Fascinating. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in their World War II episode. Just to finish World War I here, if if Germany won, how would the world, given your thing, your your bit is, uh, you know, alternative history, and I think you have a video on this, how would the world have been different? Um, I've said in this video so far that I think the Germans very easily could have won, but it would have completely changed the direction of the 20th century. A lot of people have said the 20th century is a post note to World War One. World War One set up the direction for the rest of the 20th century because the rise of communism happened because of it. World War Two happened. America's rise to dominance happened. The entire rest, the end of colonialism, the entire rest of the 20th century came after World War One, and this is one of the reasons I say it's very hard to predict the future. Because before World War One, let's say there's a 60% shot the Allies win, a 40% shot the Germans win. Whoever wins that really close shot determines the rest of history. And so the Germans would have built this giant colonial empire in Eastern Europe. And monarchy would still be the most powerful system in the world because the Germans were a monarchy. And so you would see monarchy as one of the biggest political systems. America would might still be isolationist. The U.S. didn't want to be a great power. It kind of just happened due to the power vacuum set up by World War One. And so the Germans would probably dominate Europe in the same manner that uh, the, the, they do with the European Union, except rather than dominating Europe with economics, they dominate it with weapons. And the question for further east, because the further you get away from Europe, the more complicated it is, there is a potential that Japan would have done much better or China industrialized, but that's really contingent upon, is there a World War II? And I really don't know. Like I, I think so. Where the, the there were everyone was so proud in Europe in that era. So I'd like to believe whoever lost World War One 
would have gone for a second round. I like the French or the Russians, the British, if they lost to the Germans, I think they would rearm and fight again. Um, but you never would have seen Hitler and any country that lost world war one turned to authoritarianism. So Germany would stay a monarchy. Britain and France would probably turn fascist in my opinion, or at least some very, very aggressive right-wing ideology. Yeah. It's fa fascinating. And so you began this podcast by talking about a couple of reasons why, why world wars happen. Do you, when you look at today in, uh, you know, 2024, um, how far away do you think we are from either of those conditions being uh, being present that could lead to a potential world war this decade or or the next? I I think it's a possibility. I don't think it's likely. I put it definitely in the minority shots, and the reason I say that is the world before World War One was one which had lots of young men and lots of social pressure, and so you kind of had to let off steam somehow, um, and. We can edit this out, but I often call uh, I call the World Wars demographic ejaculations, where <laughs> it's so much population pressure. And if we have a world war today, it'll be a war of desperation, where the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans will fight this war because otherwise their society will fall apart. And so, if we have a war, it'll be a very different dynamic. But also, we don't have lots of we don't have lots of young people, and that doesn't create a lot of pressure. And no countries in the world have militaries they want to use. Where America has the best military, but if you tried to draft the Gen Z, society would fall apart. China is having its own massive social issues, and Russia is failing in Ukraine. The fact that Russia can't win Ukraine just signifies there's something wrong with modern with modern warfare and modern societies. And so I think we could have a world war. I don't think it's the most likely option. Yeah, the um, well, then geared towards closing here, and uh, on that encouraging note, um, what, what have we, uh, what have we not said, or any closing statements around uh, how this war is is misunderstood or misperceived or underrated or or anything else that we didn't yet get to say that you want to say about this yeah. war? There's a stereotype that the generals who fought in World War One were idiots because they just let all these young men die. What I think the more accurate thing is they were disconnected. They were old men who didn't realize how horrible what the war was for these young guys fighting. And they were often incredibly intelligent. It's just that their ideas were wrong. They kept on trying things that could work. It could work to... The Germans dropped... The Germans would drop ludicrous amounts of artillery or cannon fire on a one-mile area for three days straight. The French defenders would still... They would still survive. And so there were all of these military calculations, which just turned out to be wrong. You'd think chemical warfare would work killing the enemy. It didn't. And it wasn't clear that tanks were the one thing that would be able to break through the trenches. And so I view it more as a tragedy than just idiots. And the reason I always say World War I is a bigger war than World War II, or a more important war, World War II killed four times as many people, is the cultural shifts with World War I were so enormous. This was a society where the values of it completely changed. And if you look at the world, I often see it like our age. Compare the world before COVID to now. The way we see the world is completely different. And then imagine tripling that. And once you left World War I, people lived in a completely different world and they had no idea how to deal with it. They spent the rest of the 20th century trying to figure out what World War I meant. And that was a combination of communism, feminism, fascism, modern art, um, technologism. The entire 20th century was developed as a way to come to terms with the horrors of World War I because no one could explain what happened. Well, that's a... Uh, a great place to, uh, to 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 wrap this deep dive on World War One and uh, first episode of History One Hundred Two in the in the bag. Ready? To... It was wonderful. Thank you. But wait, do you want to leave with some book recommendations or any any? Uh... Oh yeah, uh, I've been to say that. So there are three books I'd recommend reading for World War One. One of which is C.J. Myers' A World Undone. Number two is 
that's a bit longer. It's like 700 pages, but it's one of the best rated. John Keegan's History of World War One is 300 pages. It's it's very good. And then if you want an understanding of the social construct, the the social relations around the war and what it meant in the broader scope of the 20th century. Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley is one of the best history books ever, in my opinion, and it covers the context of World War I. Thank you, Eric, for reminding me. No, perfect. And uh, we have some upcoming topics that we're excited about. Uh, ready to mention the Vikings uh, b- before. We'll, we'll get into a variety of different historical topics. But uh, if people want uh, want us to cover certain things, feel free to leave uh, leave uh, rec- you know uh, sort of uh, comments uh, asking us to, to cover certain things, and we'll, we'll look at that as well. Um, Awesome. Until next time, my dude. It was a pleasure. See ya. History 102 by Rudyard Lynch and Eric Tornberg is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Live Players, and Econ 102. If you like the episode, subscribe, follow on YouTube, forward to a friend, and let us know what else you want us to cover. Thank you for listening.